As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business. From liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Hi, and welcome to another edition of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. So, Joe, here, um, here's a, a fun fact about where I am in my life. Uh, there is nothing <laughs> that I enjoy talking about more than value-at-risk models. That, uh, I mean, I respect that. I bet there are people <laughs> on the world who would look, in the world who would think that was sad, especially the way you framed it about where you are in life. But as you know, yeah. Tracy, that only raises my esteem of you. Oh, okay. That that's sweet. All right. Um, for listeners who don't know, value at risk models are these sort of internal risk management models that banks usually use. Um, they look at their trading books. They see how much money they could lose on a given day within a certain probability, and then they adjust their positions according to that. So that was probably the geekiest intro um, that I could come up with for this episode. <laughs> but the reason we're about to talk about VAR models, if you will, is because something really, really big has been going on in markets, right, Joe? Uh, that's absolutely right. Uh, we're seeing a, we've been seeing a bond market sell off. Exactly. The bond market, the biggest market in the world, government bonds, corporate bonds, they've been in this uh, extraordinary bull market that's arguably lasted for decades. And it's too soon to declare the bull market over. But every time uh, bonds sell off, people start to wonder, is this it? Is this the turn? Because if it is, if the, uh, if the bull market is finished, then uh, people could probably lose a lot of money. Right. Um, not just the banks who uh, have these VAR models in place and they might start to exceed the limits imposed by their VAR models, but lots of pension funds, um, you know, people like you and I. Basically, the entire game begins to change if the great bull run in bonds uh, finally comes to its inglorious end. But no one is sure whether or not that's happening yet. Um, right. So this is the thing that we're going to talk about today, right? Right. Nobody knows whether it's happening yet, but the stakes are so high that every <laughs> we're going to talk really about are, it right? anyway. <laughs> that uh, the stakes are so high that you kind of, if you're an investor, if you're a pension fund, if you're a bank, if you're whatever, you have to have a uh, you have to be thinking about this question right now. 
Right. So who better to think about this question and discuss it with than Paul Schmelzing? He is a PhD candidate at Harvard University and a visiting scholar at the Bank of England. And he wrote a really, really thought-provoking post on the BOE website recently, basically talking about historical bond market sell-offs. And um, I mean, I have to bring up the title of this post because I just love it so much. It was Venetians, Volcker, and Value at Risk, Eight Centuries of Bond Market Reversals. Well, I say we just dive right into it and start to unpack this question of whether we're at risk of, as the title says, a bond market reversal. Paul, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. So reading your blog post, which goes through 800 years of bond market history, uh, which is pretty amazing, you actually found that uh, in the history of bond market bull runs, the one um, that we're currently in, although we may be coming to the end of it, has lasted three decades. There are only two others that have actually exceeded it in length, right? That's right, Tracy. And by the way, I share your enthusiasm for value-at-risk models. Um, <laughs> There's so, one other person. That's good. <laughs> so that's right. I mean, I started the data in the year 1285. Uh, so you really go back uh, to the Italian city-states, to Venice, to Genoa, uh, who developed the first uh, secondary markets and government bonds. And you start recording the global risk-free rate from then onwards. And so over time, you just trace the, the evolution of the financial center in the world. Um, you go from the Venetians to the Genoese, then to the Dutch, finally to the British. Uh, and currently, obviously, the, the U.S. tenure is the risk-free asset. And what I found is that when we hit uh, below 140 basis points in the U.S. tenure last July, that was the lowest level that the risk-free rate in normal terms has ever reached in almost 800 years of sovereign bond market history. In terms of length and yield compression since this bull market began in 1981 as well, it's one of the most remarkable episodes in recorded economic history. We are talking about a cumulative yield compression of about 1,200 basis points. There's only the episode in the uh, in the 1440s to the 1480s that uh, exceed this uh, bull market in terms of yield compression. And as you rightly said, there's only one uh, other bull market that also exceeded uh, those two markets in terms of sheer length. Uh, that was the bull market of 1558 to 1664 uh, which almost lasted 100 years. So that's where we are. I think this is one of the most remarkable bond bull markets uh, in all of recorded economic history. And unfortunately, the flip side of the story is, of course, that you know, if history is a guide, then the reversals of those uh, bull markets uh, can be quite ugly as well. I think it's funny you know, when people talk about the stock market, they say, oh, we haven't seen valuations like this since 2000 or 2007. And now we're talking about bonds and you're making references to bull markets that we saw in the 1400s. So it really uh, puts some perspective <laughs> on it. I want to get into, uh, you know, obviously 
the nature of sell-offs. But before we do, I want to ask a technical question. You you mentioned you know the U.S. ten-year is uh, you know, U.S. Treasuries are the risk-free instrument. Other bonds are sort of measured by their spread relative to the ten-year. Throughout history, has there always been a an instrument that was considered the risk-free of that time? Is that uh, mm. Is that sort of always been part of the fixed income landscape? Good question. That's a great question, Joe, yeah. I mean, the term risk-free asset is, of course, a, a modern concept. Um, but the the practice that you basically uh, always reference your debt to, you know, what is perceived as, as the most reliable, the most stable financial center, um, that has a long tradition, actually. Mm. So the Venetians uh, back in the 13th century were always seen as the most advanced, most reliable uh, providers of credit. And so throughout Europe, you know, the princes, say in the Holy Roman Empire, in in all the other jurisdictions, they usually went to the Italian city-states and basically asked for credit there. Uh, and so they had to deal with with the conditions attached to the to the credit that was actually issued in Venice, uh, and that was uh, that was the reference rate. Now, if you go back further than the 13th century, things become more complicated because we are talking about uh, a very very thin secondary market, um, and it becomes very tough to to measure. Uh, with a reliable frequency what the risk-free rate is doing. But from the 13th century onwards, we we kind of get secondary markets. People are trading this kind of stuff uh, among each other. And uh, so that's that's really where the risk-free history starts, in a sense. So um, it is, of course, very, very fun to go back in history and look at these other uh, bull markets and bonds. Um, what actually happened when we saw those historical bull markets come to an end? Um, and how much can we extrapolate to modern markets, which are, I'm assuming, significantly more complex and very different to, say, the Venetians in the 1400s? Uh, absolutely. Um, so before the 20th century, the reversals in bond markets were often driven by geopolitical events. Right. Um, so when a certain major war broke out, uh, you know, the major emperors defaulted on their debt, uh, and that reversed the the bull or bear market that was that was currently ongoing. Um, so for the two largest bond markets, the bull markets that we have, they came to an end because the Venetians were in a uh, in a long and intense struggle with the Ottoman Empire over dominance in the Mediterranean Sea. So back in those days, having the control of the trade routes, of the finance routes in the Mediterranean Sea was the most lucrative uh, business that you could be in. Uh, And so at various points in in the 15th and 16th century, the Venetians lost uh, major battles against the Ottomans. There was a famous uh, uh, battle uh, at the Otranto uh, in in the 1480s, uh, which ended the one of the largest bull markets uh, that I recorded uh, in the 1480s. Um, we have a similar defeat by the Venetians uh, over Crete in the 1660s, which which ended the longest bull market by sheer length. Uh, and so those kind of dynamics really determine a lot of the a lot of the reversals uh, pre 20th century. When you also remember, you didn't have 
active interventionist central banks back then, right? right. Uh, mm-hmm. Unlike today. Uh, and so a lot was simply determined by the political developments, of course. So to that extent, of course, we have to be careful to uh, when we want to extrapolate to today. But that's why I really zoom into three case studies uh, in the 20th century in the in the remainder of the piece, because I think those are... Uh, have a much higher relevance to to the dynamics we are seeing today. So just to clarify something, in the old days, the bond market bull, bond bull markets would essentially end when the credit worthiness of the issuer was seriously called into question, which you would expect to happen after major military defeat. More modern um, bond sell-offs tend, I mean, very few people think that there's much risk of the U.S. or Japan not paying their debt. More modern bond sell-offs tend to have other dynamics besides sort of calling into question the existence of the issuer. So what are, um, first of all, is that a fair characterization? And B, what are some of the factors that precipitate modern sell-offs? That's a fair characterization, Joe. Um, I mean, I have to add, you know, sometimes bull markets came to an end in the past uh, because the emperors simply threw their bankers in, in jail, right? Mm. I could see that. <laughs> I could see that having that effect, but not good that, for that's market actually a very That's actually a very frequent uh, occurrence uh, in the past, you know. So if you charge too too much interest, uh, then you you, sh- you better leave the country or you have better have a good escape route. Um, today, as you mentioned, the dynamics are, are slightly different, um, and I really zoom into three case studies in the 20th century that I think are relevant for for our current uh, discussion. So the first really is, when you look at the second half of the 1960s, I think there are actually interesting parallels to the current backdrop that uh, we see in bond markets. So remember, in the 60s, the backdrop is that we have the Lyndon Johnson administration being engaged in the Vietnam War, right? That means a reasonable fiscal stimulus uh, of around 250 basis points to GDP in the second half of the 60s. Against that, we have a very tight U.S. labor market, you know, very similar to today. Um, And what happens when you combine this sort of fiscal expansion with a very tight U.S. labor market um, was that CPI inflation started really to roll. from 1.5% in the mid-1960s up to close to 6% by the end of the, by the, end of the decade. Um, and so I call that case study the inflation reversal case study. Uh, and, and so I think that's relevant because just look at the, the sort of prints that we saw in the last couple of weeks. Just yesterday we had a major print, for instance, out of China that now records 5.5% right. PPI inflation. Uh, we had prints from Germany, which suggest that inflation there is accelerating at the highest speed in 23 years. Uh, we had a U.S. jobs report that recorded, you know, almost 3% average hourly earnings. I mean to say that those kind of dynamics apparently start becoming relevant again. Uh, and so I think this is a useful case study to to really look for those kind of inflation reversal stories that, that we've seen. The second case study is the the 1994 so-called bond massacre uh, that is uh, that pops up more and more in the uh, in the in the literature. Uh, it was the most the most violent year for for long bond investors. Um, they they lost one and a half trillion in in global bond values within a year. 
some people associate that with the, the Fed funds hike in, in February 1994. Um, but actually, the 10-year the volatility started rising steeply in, in the third quarter of 1993 because of the, uh, the ERM crisis in Europe. Uh, you had emerging market volatility in places like Mexico, which entered the tequila crisis, uh, uncertainty in Turkey, Venezuela. And so a lot of those kind of leveraged bets that were very popular at the time just went sour very quickly. The thing to remember is, and that's why I said in the piece that I think we are probably heading for something worse than the 1994 bond massacre, those kind of sell-offs were over again by 1995 because fundamentals changed very little back then. By 1995, we were back in a very decent uh, environment for bonds. They gained another 18% in real terms, in real price terms in 1995. Uh, and it was more or less over after, you know, the speculators had been uh, washed out. And the third one really is the, and Tracy will probably like this, the uh, <laughs> This is my favorite risk. one. <laughs> the value at risk shock in Japan in, in 2003. Explain that one. What, is, uh, what, is that, what does that mean? So as Tracy mentioned earlier, banks typically operate with those kind of internal models that typically set a certain cushion for volatility and the average daily losses that you can at a maximum incur on, on certain positions. And once you breach those thresholds, those models uh, suggest that you have to sell certain holdings, uh, in the Japanese case, JGBs, right? And the, the dynamics in Japan in the early 2000s are, are also very interesting because there are a lot of parallels to, to our current environment. Remember, the, the Japanese were actually the first to engage in, in large-scale quantitative easing uh, programs. Uh, they started their QE program in 2001 against the backdrop of long, long disinflation and all those problems in the 1990s that... Uh, most people will probably be familiar with. And what you saw is similar to today, uh, or at least similar up until the, the first half of, of 2016, I guess. You saw a massive flattening of, of yield curves in Japan uh, because the, the BOJ bought a lot of the outstanding issues. Um, and that hurt banks. I mean, if you look at the topics, uh, which is the Japanese banking index, uh, it's sold off massively since the introduction of, of that QE program, only to sharply reverse course in, in the middle of 2003 when there were rumors about a potential tapering by the BOJ. Um, some very big institutions, banking institutions, had to be saved by the Japanese state. Uh, they bailed out the equivalent of their, you know, Bear Stearns and, and Lehman in, the, uh, in those years. Uh, Rezona Group was one of the most famous victims. But actually, they didn't bail in uh, a lot of the private holders of, of debt and equity uh, to that extent that people really got scared. And so after that, you had an increase in uh, in steepness again, which, which was great for the banks itself because if you're engaged in maturity transformation, uh, it's always nice. Uh, but the sort of volatility associated with, with those kind of VAR models uh, that that suddenly dictated a massive dumping of bonds uh, up until the middle of 2003 hurt everybody else who was not in the maturity transformation business. 
So, Paul, here's the thing that I really liked about your blog post. Um, you So you divide these modern bond market sell-offs into three categories. And the one that everyone tends to reach for, as you mentioned, is the 1994 bond massacre. Um, but you actually think that what we might be in for now is a mix um, more of like the late 60, 1960s and the early 2000s with the VAR crisis in Japan. Is that right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, listening to your explanations of each three, it's not hard to imagine how they could blend. And, you know, if you have higher inflation pickup, that makes fixed income less compelling. You start to get your sell-off, and then it spreads to um, then it spreads to the banks. The banks, because of their uh, loss requirements, have to dump, and you get something mixed. So walk us through a little bit what the downside really looks like in terms of money lost, economic ramifications, if we were to get some sort of combination 1960s, 2003, where, uh, where are the bodies going to turn up, so to speak? Yeah, so in, in purely qualitative terms, uh, we saw in the inflation reversal scenario, we saw in real terms, uh, that's always important to, uh, to take into account because as I mentioned, CPI in, in bear market years is actually double the average uh, inflation. So we're always talking about real terms, right? So in the second half of the 1960s, bond investors who were long uh, U.S. treasuries back then lost close to 40% in real terms uh, within four years. Um, mm-hmm. Now, that number is even higher, of course, when we when we look at nominal and take the, take the inflation uh, into account. But... I think you know it's it's not it's not purely unreasonable to expect at least that kind of dimension of losses uh, when it's uh, definitely when it's coupled with the sort of steepening scenario that that we saw in Japan and that's why I refer to to you know potentially the perfect storm in in bond markets uh, that that we could see because as you rightly mentioned uh, it's it's really a blend of factors that used to occur in isolation uh, in, in many other sell-offs. So, for instance, in 1994, as I mentioned, we didn't actually have a large change in inflation, right? And still, bond markets took a huge hit irrespective of, of sound fundamentals. Uh, the same is true for Japan. But now we're really combining fundamentals with you know these other factors that have to do with bank balance sheets, with positioning of uh, of speculators, uh, and I think those kind of factors make uh, make for a potentially more gloomy scenario than than the second half of the 1960s, even. So, Paul, I'm just I'm curious. Like this, this was a piece posted on the Bank of England's blog um, that got a lot of attention. What's been the response to it so far? And you know, especially from regulators like those at the BOE, has anyone been talking to you about this? How many um, concerns have you heard since you posted this? Well, of course, I'm I'm not the only one who's who's concerned about the bond market. I mean, in recent months, uh, quite a few people, especially from the investment side, have have come out and, and warned about the dynamics. Uh, I didn't have anybody from the regulatory side reach out to me so far, uh, and I have to stress, of course, I'm I'm not speaking for the Bank of England here, um, but I think you know we we should regulators definitely should be aware of those kind of trends, and 
really should be aware also of the of the quite historic proportions of the of the price distortions that we are talking about. Um, really, if we if we are say, seeing that it's it's an 800 year event uh, that we are seeing in, in in bond markets, I think we should we should be paying more attention to it than we have so far. Yeah, I think that's a bit of an understatement that we should be paying more attention <laughs> if this could be a once in 800 year event. Anyway, Paul Schmelzing, uh, very fascinating, also very gloomy. Paul Schmelzing is getting a PhD student at Harvard, also a visiting researcher at the Bank of England. Really appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much. Uh, Joe, was that was that too gloomy a podcast for this early in the year? Uh, it was pretty gloomy. It was pretty scary. And, you know, like I mentioned early on, anytime you're talking about going back to the 1400s to find precedent <laughs> for where we're where we are right now, uh, I think you have to uh, sit up and pay attention. But I, I thought that was great. I love talking to him. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I mean, we could have talked a lot about yeah. um, VAR models, but one thing I find interesting in particular is the tension between the regulations that we've had come in post-2008 financial crisis and what's happening now in that a lot of regulators wanted banks to hold safe assets, right? The risk-free asset, as you pointed out. And so now we do have banks um, that have even greater proportions of their portfolios based in their home market bonds. And again, the concern is if we get that big sell-off, rather than having the regulation make the bank safer, um, we could just be exacerbating this problem. Right. I think this is a... This is a like people who aren't immersed in this might get confused because we talk about U.S. Treasuries as safe haven, risk free assets. And they're deemed Mm. to be not safe haven or risk free, not because you can't lose money in them, but because we think the U.S. government is the most credit worthy institution in the world. And so unlike, say, lending to an oil company or lending to a tech company or lending to an emerging market, there's virtually no risk that the government won't be able to pay back the debt, but there are right. all other ways an investment in these uh, or these investments could uh, lose a lot of money. And I really like the way Paul just sort of walked through the different ways you can uh, lose money on a safe haven <laughs> asset. Yeah. How can I lose money on a safe haven asset? Let me count the ways. Um, right. Piling yeah. into ultra uh, long end of the curve because it's the only way to make money while being safe at the same time does, in retrospect, seem like a recipe for uh, trouble down the road. Yeah. All right. So this is definitely a big theme to watch for this year. And um, we'll, I guess we'll have to revisit it. Yeah. Uh, let's. Uh... 2017. Yeah, no, that's, I think, really worth emphasizing that it's this isn't just sort of like interesting historical perspective. This is happening. These questions are being posed to the market right now. We've seen yields jump a lot since this summer. Uh, bonds sell, sold off more after the U.S. presidential election. So this is of uh, implicate. This matters to traders and investors right at this moment. And I think his work is a great place to start in terms of uh, thinking about what potential downside scenarios could look like. 
Yeah, and I'm sure we'll be talking about it a lot more with a lot of other people. But let's leave it at that for this week. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. Thanks for listening. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.